it's all human nature. We're all in the people business. It doesn't matter what you're doing. At the end of the day, if you understand human nature, if you understand how to communicate with others, if you understand how they communicate, a lot of those doors are going to be wide open, right? So think about sales. Your background is sales. Think about sales, right? Normally you think about sales and then the standard thought is, okay, negotiation, it's friction. It's, I'm going to negotiate this thing for this, as opposed to having a fluid understanding of what's really being said and read between the lines. When you understand what somebody's behavior, meaning how they interpret information, what kind of tonality you can use with certain people and you know, body language, how does that play into the conversation that you're actually having with somebody? You fall into that space of understanding that goes way, way beyond words. Crazy thing. 7% of communication takes place with words. Up to 70%, it's body language. The rest is going to be tonality. It's crazy, right? Like we, We're this conjunction of this communication process that it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and on today's show, we have Rafael Cortez. Rafael is a real estate broker, investor, entrepreneur, and organizational psychologist. He is the founder of CEO Pulse LLC, a real estate investment coach, and a podcaster with Wholesaling Inc. He became one of the youngest firefighters in Yuma County at the age of 19 and became his first entrepreneurial project, which was Nectar Transports. He started his first business at 21 and then started his first company at the age of 23. There's a lot that we can learn about Rafael, about real estate investing, organizational psychology, and we're going to dig into all that in today's episode. All right, Rafael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the typical questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I'm cookies and cream kind of guy. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was actually at a baseball game last night here at the minor league and I saw Dippin' Dots. I love Dippin' Dots and they had yeah. some cookies and cream. I was waiting for it. I waited like 10 minutes in line for it and they were out. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, dude, I'm telling you, <laughs> it's a high demand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, are you a cone or a bowl guy? I mean, it depends, I guess. I guess I do both. But yeah, one of my favorite spots is a yogurt teeny. I love that place. And you go and then you create your own little ice cream, throw a bunch of stuff. My base is always cookies and cream. And then I, I'll drop fruits and all kinds of stuff into it. But Heck yeah, um, but yeah that's a bowl. Everything else is a cone. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? I'm a real estate investor mainly, right? I own a, three different businesses. I'm an organizational psychologist. So I do a lot of coaching, consulting for general businesses. And I also coach on real estate and wholesaling specifically. I own a real estate brokerage, a bunch of agents that do both sides. They do real estate investments and traditional. And then I own a fix and flip business and wholesale business, which is Pulse Capital. So it's kind of like the nutshell of the three businesses. Interesting thing is that they all kind of talk together. So in my head, it's just big business with a couple of different arms. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to get into the organizational psychology part of this and how you can use some of those tactics of what you've learned to build out yeah. your team and how you kind of integrate all this together. But before yeah. we get there, you didn't start out into real estate. So take us back to your first deal. No. Where did your real estate journey begin? So I was a firefighter when I was 19 years old. I kind of got into my first exposure to anything outside of W2 was talking to my cap. He was really good at investing in different things and he just kind of planted the seed. But I started thinking about entrepreneurship and having my own business. So my first business was a non-emergency medical transportation business. So I had that for years. So I launched it when I was 21, got my first paid client when I was around 23. So it took a minute, right, for the thing to just get some traction and whatnot. I mean, it was a very, very interesting journey. I had that for eight years, sold that, 
And in the interim, I started looking at, okay, you know, places where I could just park some of the money that I was putting together. And back in high school and going through college, my thing was construction. I would go work at a concrete company, masonry company, or framing company for the summer and then do construction and then have my own cash and that sort of thing, right? So I knew how to swing a hammer. I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to flip a house. I mean, it just kind of reverted back to old school stuff. So, I mean, I did okay. I didn't lose on that first deal. But yeah, I mean, it was an absolute learning experience. So I started as a fixing flipper. But again, it's one of those things you buy a house at a discount. I mean, I did everything wrong, I think, honestly, like from gauging what the repair costs were going to be from actually not hiring anybody and doing everything myself and just running out of time on things. I think I survived on that deal because I bought it cash and I didn't leverage it. If I had had money, like hard money on that thing or something like that, like there's no way I would have made money at all. I always like to say, I mean, I know plenty of people that have done one deal and plenty of people that have done no deals in real estate, plenty of people that have done millions of deals in real estate, but very few yeah. people that have done only one. So if you cannot yeah. lose money in your first deal and just learn through the process, it's usually a pretty good start into your real estate journey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so quick question on that is like, I am not handy at all. And I actually think that actually helped me scale some of my rental portfolio when I was in the mm -hmm. single family space specifically because I had to learn how to hire contractors and listen and ask questions and vet different contractors on whether something was going to cost what they said it was going to cost. Yeah. When did you ultimately stop swinging a hammer and scale it from the CEO standpoint? Oh, by my second flip, man, I wanted nothing to do with hammers and nails anymore. It was just a lot. I mean, it took me about five, six months to flip that first property of just me, you know, having that thing and coming and doing work on it. And I mean, I hired a couple of people like the guys that I hate painting. So like I hired people to come in and paint, but I mean, I wanted to tackle and everything else, like the stupid things. Okay, cool. I'm going to resurface the cabinets in the kitchen, that sort of thing. That, like that would have taken somebody a weekend. It took me, I don't know, like a month and a half. So just doing everything wrong. Right. But in my head, I was wired for that. I was wired to do it. Okay, cool. It's just what we do. I grew up humble beginnings. I grew up in a mobile home. And so I was used to working on things by myself. If I wanted a nice cabinet, I would make it nice, right? We'd go buy something, thrift shop, and then bring it back and then make it nice. That was a norm in my head. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to flip this house. Even though I was doing better at the, with the transportation business, in my head, it was still me going back to, okay, just it's what it's supposed to happen, right? And then I found out once you start leaking time, for the sake of saving a little bit of cash here and there, it turns to be a lot more expensive. I did this exercise where I sat down and I started just to take note of what an hourly, right? Like what's my hour worth? And that to me was mind boggling, man. It was mind blowing because I started looking at the revenue that I was bringing in from transportation business, right? And looking at my yearly income and all that stuff. And then I quantify that to an hourly rate out of my time, how much is an hour worth? And I looked at that thing, it was in the hundreds. I was like, holy crap. So you're telling me that every time I'm trying to swing a hammer, I'm literally wasting hundreds of dollars because I could be focusing my time on something else. And I think that was like an instant game changer for me. I had a coach one time that said, do exactly that. Figure out what your hour costs you or what your productivity yeah. is per hour. Multiply it by two. Anything under that, you should definitely hire out without hesitation. Anything up to 10x, you should be questioning from there. So two to 10x, you should be questioning. Anything over 10x, like you'd be lucky to work on those sorts of tasks. So yeah. go find those 10x tasks. Yeah, exactly. So that was a total game changer. And then, I mean, I just started learning as I went, uh, asking questions and, you know, talking to other contractors and, and building kind of like my relationship, you know, that way. But yeah, I started taking myself out of that space really quick. I'm a believer that I think you have to know enough about everything that you're tapped into, right? Just enough to be dangerous in it. Understand what's going on. Not necessarily to be a master at the craft that you don't want to 
be a master of, right? But as a CEO or owner, you have to understand what everybody's doing, how the machine is just kind of put together because visionary roles, right? We come in and that's the thing. And at least at the level that I'm playing right now, I still have the ability to do that kind of stuff, to be tapped in into the workings of the business. And I love playing in that space, putting the machine together and then plugging people into it so they can run the machine. But it's really coming from a lot of lessons learned where, I mean, I was just spinning my wheels, man. <laughs> I thought I was saving money, but I really wasn't. I thought I was doing things right by just going to like YouTube University and looking at, and I mean, it's just a thousand mistakes were made really, really quick. And I, I mean, that helped me in the long run, right? Because fail fast, fail often. I mean, it happened over a period of like six months where I, I started doing all this activity in real estate and I learned a lot of things. And eventually I pivoted and I turned my main model into wholesaling model as opposed to fix and flipping. I'm st I still do fix and flips, but I do it as a secondary now. So built the business in wholesaling and I have that going as a, the main business on the real estate side. Yeah. So I was getting ready to say, I bet at some point in every flipper's journey, they realize that wholesalers are getting these deals before them and basically choosing which deals they want to keep and which deals they want to keep for themselves yeah. uh, and offload through a wholesaling process. At what point during your career was it after 10 houses, 15 houses, did you <clears> recognize <throat> that there was a value you could add in the wholesaling space as well? So I was just signing documents. I didn't even know what a settlement statement was. By the third house, I looked at the paperwork. I actually took a little bit of time to look at the settlement statement. And then I saw a fee for, I think, like $18,000. I'm like, what is this fee for $18,000? Going to that guy that he talked to about the house. And he told me like straight up, right? He wasn't trying to hide anything. Like He's like, no, that's my wholesale fee. So that's my fee for finding you that property. And we did it in the form of an assignment. I was like, heck yeah, man. You made 18K on this thing? Yeah. I was like, how? And then he just kind of broke it down after that. I mean, I started looking into podcasts, listening to, I mean, I got, I looked for mentorship right away, like either go work for somebody who's in the business and doing it or go get somebody who's already done it and have them teach you, right? Speed is money when it comes to our space, fast implementation, that sort of thing. So I did a couple of deals, just listening to podcasts and building up relationships and talking to people who I knew. And then after that, I just, um, I started working, actually, I sold my transportation business. A lot of things happened during that interim. So I sold my transportation business. I did pretty well on it. I started listening to Flip to Freedom podcast with uh, Sean Terry. So long story short, I ended up working as acquisitions for Sean Terry because I wanted to learn the business. And I stayed there for a couple of years. That's where I really built my learning curve. I mean, got cut by like 10 years because of the exposure that I was getting to just seller appointments. And it's a high performance environment, right? And anybody who doesn't know him, he's a total rock star when it comes to coaching and wholesaling space. And I learned a lot during that process, but it really, I mean, it was imperative for me to come in to a place that was going to challenge me and then teach me at the same time. I typically hear flippers say the sell four, keep one. So basically when they start their wholesaling journey, they start yeah. selling every five deals, they sell four and keep one for themselves. You mentioned the process of working for somebody to kind of learn the ropes. You've developed a couple of frameworks on processes, but also the criteria of a deal. So specifically, I've heard you mention like four things you know need to know to make a deal happen. Would you mind kind of walking us through those? So I guess... If we're talking specifically about wholesaling, right? It's really the action of finding discounted deals and talking to motivated sellers. That's what it is, right? If you're strictly thinking about wholesaling, you're locking a deal, meaning that you're negotiating a deal for below market value because there's some type of need there. Either the property is super beat up, there's time constraints, the property's in foreclosure, there's divorce, there's something there big that does not allow them to put it up on the MLS and sell it traditionally. So that's where selling through a cash offer comes in, right? But with that out of the way, there's for a deal to make sense, you have to look at condition of the house. You have to look at the timeline. 
the motivation, what's the motivation for them selling, and then the price. The price has to make sense. So it's, I mean, we call it the four pillars, condition, timeline, motivation, and price. So going into the condition, it's going to be one of the things that allows you to, to really see if there's something that you can come in and then solve because of the structural problems, right? The property, again, it's beat up, it needs rehabbing, it needs a ton of work. The uglier, the messier, the more beat up they are, the better. We look for the ugly properties, the properties that nobody wants. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we walk to a property where you feel like you need to throw away your shoes. It's like, man, this is money. <laughs> it's that kind of problem, man, that we're coming in to solve. There's a stigma behind wholesaling. A lot of people think when they hear the term wholesaler, these people are taking advantage of sellers and they're stealing properties left and right and whatnot. And I think because of the low entry barrier, you know, people have taken advantage of that position in the past. But in reality, we're looking for a very small amount of the population. That's where the work, right? And the tenacity really comes in. We're looking for about anywhere from three to 5% of the people that actually want to sell are going to be a fit to sell to us. It's people who can't put their property again on the MLS. They can't sell it traditionally. They don't have the money for the repairs. They don't have the time to wait. They got relocated. We have a lot of people that come through probate. They have no idea. They inherit a property that's in the other side of the country. They have no idea what to do with it and that sort of thing. So it's at the end of the day, it really comes down to solving a problem for that seller. The better we solve the problem, the bigger the problem, the more money we get on an assignment fee. It's, but it's an exchange of time and convenience for an assignment fee. It's really what yeah. it comes down to. Two things I want to say there. One, I'm in sales in my regular W-2 job. And that's what I say sales is, is just solving problems. And that's all yeah. wholesaling really is, is somebody out yeah. there has a dire need for cash fast and the largest asset they own is a home. And you are just connecting them to folks that are looking to buy homes and regardless yeah. of condition, but have the cash. Second thing I want to say is like over the past five years, I've had this conversation with people that want to get into real estate and they don't understand why a person would be motivated seller when they could just post it on the MLS. Yeah, We're in some very choppy economic times here in the back half of 2022 as we go into 2023. And I think the motivation will be around there now, whether it's jobs, moving for new jobs, divorce, relationship strains, things like that. So are you seeing an uptick in the amount of people that are looking to offload their properties today or motivated sellers? What has that done to your business right now? Oh, yeah, man, absolutely. It's especially because of a timeline, right? We're talking of the timeline. We're in the second half of 2022. And there's a lot of things happening. Inflation is what, 8.3 right now. Interest rates are, they've gone to the 5.6 range at national average, right? I mean, give and take. So what happened last couple of months is we see a dramatic spike in inventory. So inventory wasn't that strong at the beginning of the year. This is nationwide. I'm in the Phoenix market, but it's like a little micro sample of what happens at a national level. So we're usually ahead a few months of the rest of the country. This is for the people doing research out there on anything in terms of residential. Look at the Phoenix, Arizona market. And usually those trends over the last 10 years tend to just kind of blow up nationally. So you'll see something happen in Phoenix and then it happens nationally. We saw a spike right in inventory. And sure enough, the spike in inventory went up nationally. So what happens is that people were putting properties up on the MLS, selling traditionally with an agent, and they were getting above asking price. Like those days are gone. That seller mentality where I'm going to ask for the moon and the stars, even if my property is not worth it, it might still sell. Like that stuff is, you know, slowly, surely faded last couple of months. A lot of people being just more open to negotiate and talk about what can we do with this property? Can we do creative financing deals? Can we do innovation type deals? If the wholesale offer doesn't work, how can we come in and structure this deal so it creates a win-win for both parties? But yeah, we're seeing that on the other side of the token, on the buyer side, 
we're having more of a challenge because buyers are a little bit more skeptical because days in market are getting extended. So buyers are thinking about that. Now, what we have to do when we negotiate a property's account for like three months whole time, right? And then factor that into that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but price points have dropped about two and a half percent across the board on a monthly basis. So what we're doing right now to lock up a property for an investor, somebody's going to come in and flip it. We'll look at whatever the market value of that property is right now and then shave off 10% automatically just out of the gate for the sake of time and trends. And then we'll start working the wholesale offer number, right? So it has enough meat in the bones by the time that flipper is done with the property. So there's different strategies that are coming into play here. And we pivot right as we go along with the trends. But yeah, absolutely. Like the uh, sellers are getting the memo, you know, okay, cool. There's a lot more inventory. And now we have to do concessions. We have to do closing costs. We have to do things like this or sell cash on certain properties. And yeah, but it's definitely shifted a lot of the business models out there when it comes to wholesaling. I'm so excited you said you would take the ARV and shave 10% off of it and then work backwards from those numbers because a lot of this wholesaling list that I'm still a part of and that I see mm. go across my desk are not doing that today. Yeah. I even told a guy the other day, he was trying to wholesale a package yeah. portfolio in Chattanooga. And I'm like, dude, you've got 2021 numbers in there beginning of 2022. Oh my God, yeah. You do not have 2023 numbers in there. So yeah. I'm glad to see you're doing that. Are you only doing wholesale and flips in Arizona? Are you doing this across the country or in different markets? No. So we've tapped into a couple of different markets. So my backyard is my main market. So Maricopa County, I don't do flips anywhere outside of this. It's just, it's not my model. I'd rather move quick. To me, it's too distracting. The model works. I think we picked the level of headaches that we want and it's by design, really. I mean, I've had the opportunity to flip in other places, but even if it's a really good juicy deal, I'll just slide it over to one of my cash buyers and have them capitalize on that. And I make some cash and move on to the next one quick. Yeah, we glad you it. said that, by the way, because I think <laughs> like that's probably the key to your success is to be able to, to focus on that. I see great deals all over the country and people ask me why I don't go to Indiana or Wisconsin or yeah. all this. And it's like, I have a core thesis and a core competency. I don't even know the first contractor in those markets to even try to be successful. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt you there. I just yeah. I, I wanted to highlight that, that saying no to the wrong things will help you accelerate what you say yes to. It's key, man. It's key. And yeah, it's a matter of focus, right? Like you create this business model, this business if you have enough time to tap into different things and kind of mess around with experimenting on you know different markets and that sort of thing, I mean, it's fine, right? But right now, that doesn't factor into the picture that I have as far as the entire business model. So yeah, it takes a lot of willpower for me to not look at the shiny objects. But then I think about it. It's like, all right, cool. I have a good set of buyers like in Tampa, right? Well, we've done a bunch of deals in Tampa. If I don't have the ability to, to JV and partner up with somebody who I know is, and then we'll do a split, I'll provide the property, they'll provide the fix, the management, all that stuff which I do here in town for the most part, I wouldn't even look at that project. So it's like, all right, just take the assignment and then move on to the next one. So it's just part of that business model, but it keeps it fluid, right? It keeps it uh, moving. But yeah, so as far as markets, Atlanta, we've done Texas and then Tampa. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. One of the parts that I find super interesting about you is your background in organizational psychology. So you have a number of different businesses that stand on their own, but also kind of intertwine together. So yeah. I guess to start this conversation, first of all, tell us what is organizational psychology? Why did you end up studying this? What did you find interesting? And we'll go from there. So organizational psychology is the study of people in the workplace, people in systems, really, when it comes down to it's business psychology, right? But it's understanding human behavior and then understanding systems and processes within any company or corporation, and then plugging them together, making them work simultaneously. So you probably heard the adage of right butts and right seats type of stuff that plays along into organizational psychology. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, right? So for example, if you're a very introverted person, 
and I put you on a PR role where you have to be out there and just being the face of something and networking, it's going to wear you out. So there's a lot of energy, just like our body takes up energy when we go to the gym, our mind takes up energy when we're adapting from one natural behavior to one required behavior. And understanding that plays well, for example, into attrition, how long employees last in your in their seats and their roles, how well they perform and turnover. Like it's huge on turnover. I mean, that's just like one little aspect of it, but understanding how create or how to develop the systematic approach to really building a business and then plugging people into it makes sense. You can have a really bad ass of a business that works very, very well, but if you don't have the right people behind it, you know what I mean? Or the right roles, it's not going to run. So it, it's a matter of putting both of them together. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you have a business or if you're a leader of people, the first thing you got to ask yourself when somebody's having difficulties performing in their job is, are they in the right seat? Or maybe right. first of all, like what's going on in their personal life? Do they have something that's pulling them away? And you'd have to have the empathetical knowledge to go ask questions and make sure that you have a good enough relationship where they can express that freely. Yeah. The second thing is, are they in the right seat? I mean, I have seen rock stars come through my teams through the days that have just been in the wrong seat. When you put them in the right seat, all of a sudden they be they are the rock stars they are. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's incredible, man, how that works. You find where somebody thrives. I don't know, maybe somebody files an application for an acquisitions role, right? In my opinion, there's certain elements that you got to have to be a really good acquisitions rep. That includes social awareness, includes people skills, includes a lot of things like that. So a lot of the soft skills play into that role. And then when you have somebody on dispositions, for example, and and I'm talking about wholesale here, the requirements are going to be different. You have to be really good about a lot of the hard skills, which are software, spreadsheets, CRMs communication, email, and structured processes and systems, right? So you have different demands for each one of the roles, but somebody submits an application because they saw acquisitions was available. You plug them in there without knowing that their best strength is going to be on the hard skills side of things because they like more of that isolated space, focused space, as opposed to that people space. And you're starting off on the wrong foot and it's expensive. It's expensive. Think about all the opportunities that are lost not just on payroll, right? Because we pay payroll on a regular basis and then you have commissions and all that stuff and deals that you get and whatnot. But what about the stuff that you didn't get because that person was not in the right role? I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. there. So how do you find out their strengths and weaknesses before you hire them? Like what have you done to implement that in your business? I built assessments for just internal purposes for my companies. So I have just targeted assessments for each one of the roles based on behavioral strengths. But one of the fastest ways to just kind of figure out if somebody's going to be a fit or not is have a decent sense of whatever that role requires and then do a disc test, disc assessment profile. Tony Robbins has one that's for free, tonyrobbins.com forward slash disc and D-I-S-C. And then it'll give you strengths and weaknesses and talk about behavioral, the approach, right? And have a conversation with that type of person and how do you build them into your environment as a human being, not necessarily role specific, but understanding how people think is huge, right? Now, when you connect that with understanding what the roles and responsibilities are, you can put two and two together. So yeah, yeah but I, it's, it's one of the things that I go deep on. <laughs> yeah. I don't implement a disc assessment before I hire someone, but I probably should because there's a lot of value in understanding what drives that person, whether they're the right person or not, and then how they're going to interact with the people around you. I know we were chatting offline that you also have a coaching business where you help wholesalers or people that want to get in the business really understand the process yeah. and really scale their business. Can you talk a little bit about how organizational psychology has really helped you coach people one-on-one as well? It's all human nature. We're all in the people business. It doesn't matter what you're doing. At the end of the day, if you understand human nature, if you understand how to communicate with others, if you understand how they communicate, a lot of those doors are going to be wide open, right? 
So think about sales. Your background is sales. Think about sales, right? Normally you think about sales and then the standard thought is, okay, negotiation, it's friction. It's I'm going to negotiate this thing for this, as opposed to having a fluid understanding of what's really being said and read between the lines. When you understand somebody's behavior, meaning how they interpret information, how they what kind of tonality you can use with certain people and your know, body language, how does that play into the conversation that you're actually having with somebody? You fall into that space of understanding that goes way, way beyond words. Crazy thing. 7% of communication takes place with words. Up to 70%, it's body language. The rest is going to be tonality. It's crazy, right? Like we, We're this conjunction of this communication process that it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. But organizational psychology just helps you understand how people think and really just you know, make the connection between that and then, okay, what roles do I need fulfilled in my company? Where can I place this person that they're going to be thriving and I just perform in being a laptop with a pulse? <laughs> yeah. One of the things you just said too is how much a portion of our communication is done non-verbally mm. as opposed to yeah. verbally. And that's why I have a general rule that you should never read context into an email or a text or things like yeah. that. Because really, that's your projection on what you think they meant rather than their intended message. If you ever get a snarky text or a snarky email and you're trying to figure out or you get frustrated by that, the best thing you yeah. can do is call that person and just say, can you help me clarify what you're trying to say here? Because I'm not understanding yeah. what you're trying to say. Yeah, 100%, man. A lot of times, leaving ego aside is going to be one of the biggest challenges because ego is going to, we're going to identify whatever we want to interpret as with our own glasses per se, right? But reality is just how many people have you come across regionally? Think about regionally. If you're talking from somebody in New York and you're from the Midwest, Midwest people tend to be very warm, right? And then you talk to somebody from New York, they may be in the exact same emotional state, but one is yeah. going to sound like jerk and the other one is very welcoming and homey. It's just different understandings in, we all speak English, but we have different languages, if that makes sense, when it comes to tonality, when it comes to expression. And that's the human side, right? On the pragmatic side, on the business systems and processes side is how can you create a business model that's, I call it the less framework, lean, effective, strategic, and simple. If I can incorporate those four things into my business, if I can make my business lean and all the actions that are being taken, you know, they're effective, just efficient, but effective. And they're strategic and it's simple. People are going to adopt it, right? So the framework that I look for on the business side, but I mean, it's got to talk to that human element. Human capital, man, it, it's, it's so underrated. I think we're coming into an age where there's more understanding on that and it's bubbling up. People are understanding that now it's important to matter in a business as opposed to just get a paycheck, to have that connection and a sense of impact and belonging as opposed to just be a clock in and a clock out in somebody's payroll. <laughs> yeah. I also talk about too, I mean, I work in technology, so there's this big debate around artificial intelligence. Is artificial intelligence going to replace us or complement us? And this idea that they're going to take jobs away from people and things like that. If we move down that pessimistic path, for example, and we just take that argument as true, then the one thing that you could do to separate yourself in both business and in personal life is just have an empathetic sense because what technology will never be able to do is to be empathetic or to read into those emotions. It can understand where a process is breaking down and try to better that process, but it won't be empathetic. So that's kind of yeah. like my one thing I go around telling everybody early in their career is at the end of your career, you're going to be complemented with large amount of technology, but it will never be able to be empathetic. So go learn that skill today. Yeah. Be a human. <laughs> yeah. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. Don't be a jerk. Be a human. Yeah. Well, Rafael, fantastic conversation. I want to shift this now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? My favorite book 
If you're talking fiction, it'd be The Alchemist by Paulo oh, yeah. Coelho. I love that book. I mean, it's, it's fiction, but is it really? It's just one of those really good fables. I love that book. And then Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. It's an amazing book on the image of self, self-belief. So it's a really good book. I'll say The Alchemist, the first time I read it, I was not a fan until the last like 20 pages. And then it all kind of came together. And man, maybe I just read it at the right time in my life, but it hit home high. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, but certain chapters will speak to you. It was a really game changer book for me. And it's yep. just a story. That's what's so crazy about it. Yeah. Yeah. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do yeah. every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? I became a morning person, so I made myself a morning person. I was not a morning person. But yeah, my mornings are for me, really. It's my time to... So I'll wake up in the mornings. And what my schedule looks like right now is wake up at five in the morning. I go to the gym. Really cool byproduct of that is my son. He's 15 years old. So he goes to the gym with me in the mornings and we spend you know this hour and a half before he goes to high school. And it's just our thing, right? He pushes me more than I push him. He just doesn't know. It creates that bond and, and that connection. Come back home. I meditate. I journal. And I do, uh, I mean, I read in the mornings. It's kind of like my me time, but I do a mix of all that stuff. I was really pushing to kind of, you know, have the straight block, right? To meditate and the straight block to journal and not get distracted or not interject things in the middle. But it's impossible, especially if you have family and there's activity going on in your house in the morning. So in the mornings, I have to wake up early in the morning, knock that out of the way, go drop off my son at bus stop. And then we have another conversation. Then my 10-year-old son, I go drop him off at eight in the morning. So that kind of creates the block. But in the spaces in between, I'm, I'm still doing me time. So it's me time involved with you know family connection. And I mean, 9 a.m. rolls around and I'm ready to go. Yeah. That sounds like a perfect <laughs> yeah. morning. Time with the family, time for yourself. Yeah. Our third thing is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Be loud. This came from one of my you know, really, really good friends, actually. And, and it meant stop doubting our own abilities, right? For the sake of, I don't know if what I have to put out into the world is good enough. I know it's working for me, but I don't know if it's going to work for anybody else. And just, you know, second guessing and creating that self-doubt really being loud, it forces you to one, act at a different level or perform at a different level, but really it creates that self-reliance and gets rid of a lot of like, for example, one thing for me, this is being completely vulnerable or transparent, but it was validation, right? Anytime I did something, I would have to look for validation somewhere, somehow. Okay, I'm doing it right. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm seeing, I had to get like a stamp on it from somewhere. Otherwise, I felt like I was off track. And the crazy thing is that if you're a real entrepreneur, 99% of the stuff, you have no idea what the hell is going on. I mean, you're trying to figure things out. You're following a process, putting a process together and our abilities in that problem-solving skill set, right? To me, being loud about my vision, where I wanted to take the companies, what I wanted to create, the impact that I wanted to create, you know, especially with my students and putting myself out there in terms of value, in terms of being on podcasts and YouTube and social media and all that stuff and really voicing my thoughts was a game changer. So that was huge. Who gave you that advice? Brent Daniels. Nice. My boy. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our fourth one is, what are you most proud of in your life? I think everybody wants to say, I mean, I'm very proud of my kids, honestly, they're like the rock stars, but from a self-indulging standpoint, I think I'm proud of clarifying my current purpose because it took me a lot of work to figure it out and which is to empower. I think, especially growing up from humble beginnings and, and going through different stages of entrepreneurship, tapping different industries, it's easy to get lost. And I did get lost for a long, long time where I thought, what mattered was going after that dollar, right? Chasing the dollar, chasing the financial freedom. And then and at the end of the day, I think what I want was to own my options. 
So once you hit that stage where you're out of survival mode, like what drives, right? That to me was a question that I had to sit for a long time. Okay. Like, man, my outside motivation is done. Like I hit it. I'm not dying anymore. So what's going to wake me up in the morning? And I sat with it and really came down to, I thought about motivation and inspiration for entrepreneurs, but really what does it is empowerment, right? I think it's a combination of everything. It's really being the change out there and having somebody else use you as a seed or a catalyst, right? For, for their own change. So I think that's one of the things I'm the most proud of. I want to be cognizant of your time, but I got to ask, like what exercises or how did you come to that clarification? If somebody's listening right now and they're a little bit lost, they're trying to figure out what their clarifying moment is. What did you do to find that? We're dynamic beings. The first thing that I had to understand, because when people talk about purpose, at least every time I would speak about purpose, it was, I mean, it sounded like this lifelong thing. Like, what's my purpose? I mean, my purpose is something that I'm going to have when I'm dying and I'm 90 years old. But it's really not. We're dynamic beings. We're always evolving. So to me, coming to the understanding that purpose evolves like we do, it was a way of making it just a lot easier to consume. And my purpose right now, right, it's empowerment. I don't know if my purpose is going to evolve to something else, something deeper in five years. But it's I know that at this point in time, that's what brings me joy, right? And I think that's the key word. It's joy. It's a smile on your face. If what you're doing in the mornings or just throughout your day is really putting a smile on your face and it's guiding you every step of the way into that familiar point, which is purpose at this point in time to the person that you are now as a human being, I think you're winning, right? Everything I do throughout the day in the brokerage, in the fix and fill business, wholesale business, coaching, everything points over to empowerment. Every conversation that I'm having with somebody else, it's, it's an empowering conversation. I can tell you with confidence that nobody's had a conversation with me over the last 10 years where I'm complaining about something and I'm being a falling into victimhood of something else. It's always empowerment. And it's just because the clarity of purpose is there. It's understanding that we're dynamic beings. We're going to change. Our purpose is going to change. It's going to evolve along with us. And that's one thing. The other one is what brings you joy. It's really what puts a smile on our face. We have this really good indicator. We're always looking at KPIs as business owners, key performance indicators. We're always like, okay, what, how many sales did we make? You know, what numbers are... What about our own humanness KPIs? Like joy is the biggest one of them. It's not even happiness. It's not bliss. It's not triumph or success. It's joy. If you have the ability to walk the day and 90% of the day it's spent with a smirk on your face or a smile on your face, you're in a state of joy, right? You're winning. Take that to the bank and do more of that. I'm so glad you talked about, and we're going to have to nerd off a different conversation at a different time because <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that. But just to kind of summarize what I'm hearing more importantly than anything is just give yourself grace. So when you yeah. talked about the need for being validated, you came to a point where you gave yourself grace that you didn't need to be validated and that things would change. When you were talking right. about empowerment, you're talking about you really gained clarity on that. It's okay if my goal right now is to empower people or be in power or whatever the word would be there. Because that thing can change in 20 years if I want it to be. What am I yeah. right now? And knowing that I'm okay, giving myself some grace that that thing could change. Yeah. Fantastic conversation. So I'm going to give us with our last one here, our fifth and last one. If you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Da Vinci. Okay. Why? This is my boy. Man, that guy was just <laughs> so far ahead of his time. I don't know if you read anything on him, but I mean, it's just the thought process the guy had, you know, historic figure. It was insane in so many different spaces. And I think I identify with him in the sense of curiosity. I'm curious about a lot of things. I'm the guy that's wondering how the 1968 Camaro engine worked, right? But I'm also, okay, how do I code something and put a program together? How do flowers do their thing? So it's curiosity is always, I mean, it's, it's a big asset that I think it's not tapped into enough. 
And going back through history, he's been one of the personalities that I've looked at that just had an insane amount of curiosity. And I think, I mean, you don't have to be the smartest guy if you're curious. I love it. We are over a hundred shows. And I think that's the first time somebody said Da Vinci, which now looking back on it, it's kind of random that no yeah. one has said that before. Yeah. He was a dude. <laughs> Blazing the trails over there, Raphael. Blazing <clears throat> trails. Well, again, fantastic conversation. I'm super happy that you came on, added a lot of value, not only on what you're doing in your business, but how we can look at the organizational psychologist part of it as well. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you, your coaching programs, the things that you've got together, where's the best place we can put them? If you want to find out about the coaching program, go to reiwholesaling.com. And yeah, I have a PDF breakdown of the entire process. You can download a PDF version of the thing there and get a bunch of information. If you want to reach out to me directly, I'm pretty active on social media at Rafael Cortez CEO on Instagram. And then I also have a YouTube channel with a ton of content out there. It's Rafael Cortez CEO. Perfect. Yeah. We will link all of those in the show notes. And then Raphael, thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.